Thanks, Colin. Uh, we've been looking at lots of questions that people ask about the Christian faith and objections that you come up with to it. And tonight we're looking at one of the most current contemporary ones. It wasn't uh, much heard of uh, when I was growing up. I was a teenager at the time when we had the last great period of, a real, I think, real hostility uh, to the Christian faith um, in, in Britain and the Western world. That was in the 60s when there were all sorts of other ideas floating around and people were saying, well, it doesn't need to be this way. I think the 50s were quite quiet. Well, I'm just a little boy, so I wouldn't know too much about it. But in the 50s, I think people had come back from the war and uh, things had re-established themselves and a lot of, uh, of uh, things were bubbling under the surface. But people were still going to church in large numbers and uh, there was a lot of respect for religion. In the 60s, that kind of went a little bit. And I remember uh, at uh, school, at university, having to defend what I believed very, very uh, uh, strongly indeed. It was, it was a time when the criticism was, was enormous. Then, over the 70s, people sort of became more kind of, yeah, whatever, in their attitudes. And that was a time when you had people like Uri Geller around claiming to, to bend spoons and things like that. All sorts of new spiritual alternatives started to be talked about. And people became a lot more relativist in their thinking. Also, through the 70s, 80s and 90s, um, the whole atmosphere was much more propitious to the spread of Christianity. In some places, the church growth movement started to see big churches grow in some parts of the world. Not so much in Britain, but there were things here. Uh, the missions of the church went ahead in, in new ways. It was exciting to, like, coming up to the end of the, 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 the millennium, uh, to see how so many plans were in, in, in place to finish the work of evangelism within our, our generation. And there was a real confidence that the gospel was going forward and nothing could stop it. And then another generation came along that was just as, as self-confident and stroppy as we had been back in the 60s. And uh, that was the millennials. And along with them came things like the new atheism, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, things like that. And suddenly we started being asked new questions about Christianity. And tonight's is one of them. What was the point of the cross? You see, at times when there's a lot of respect for Christianity and Western culture, people don't ask that question because a cross is still a very potent symbol. And uh, you just need to walk down a, a busy street in any city and count the number of people who are wearing a cross around their neck, and it's staggering. It's a lot higher than you might think. Um, the cross has been a, a, a central symbol of Western culture, and it's made that way even amongst a lot of people who never darkened the door of a church. However, uh, thanks to Richard Dawkins and people like him, people are turning around now and saying, well, does the idea actually make sense? Back in the 60s, all the arguments were about, well, you can't scientifically prove that God exists, and, uh, well, the Bible is, is just a bunch of ancient documents that you can't use. And we've dealt with some of those questions already in this series, and uh, I think Christians in general know how to do those. <laughs> but this is a difficult one. This strikes at the very heart of what we believe. Does the whole idea of the cross make sense? One of the biggest opponents of the, the way that Christians explain the gospel and the love of God, obviously, is Richard Dawkins, high priest of the, the, the New Atheists. And uh, he said once in a dismissive comment, I've described atonement, that's what Jesus did on the cross, the central doctrine of Christianity as vicious, sadomasochistic and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad. Well, don't hold back, Richard. Tell us what you think. And uh, that's the sort of language I think not have been used 20 years ago about the subject. But he, he, he 
falls it off. It's a horrible idea that God, this paradigm of, paragon of wisdom and knowledge and power, couldn't think of a better way to forgive us our sins than to come down to earth in his altar ego as his son and have himself hideously tortured and executed so that he could forgive himself. And when you put it like that, you think, that's a fairly strange idea, isn't it? However, I think Dawkins is making lots of strange assumptions in there, which are not necessarily true. He's smuggled them in, and we'll see what uh, we're talking about in just a minute. How about Christopher Hitchens, his sidekick, who's now sadly died? He says this, I find something repulsive about the idea of vicarious redemption. That means somebody else dying for you and forgiving you. I would not throw my numberless sins onto a scapegoat and expect them to pass from me. We rightly sneer at the barbaric societies that practice this unpleasantness in its literal form, where you sacrifice animals and think, right, that can be guilty instead of me, and therefore I'm forgiven. It's just barbaric, he says. There's no moral value in the vicarious gesture anyway. As Thomas Hain pointed out, you may, if you wish, take on another man's debt, or even to take on his place in prison. That would be self-sacrificing. But you may not assume his actual crimes as if they were your own. For one thing, you didn't commit them and might have died rather than do so. For another, this impossible action would rob him of individual responsibility. So he says it's immoral to treat somebody else, like Jesus, for example, as if he's done all the bad stuff and so we get away scot-free. Where is the justice? Where's the morality in that? And so he goes on. So the whole apparatus of absolute unforgiveness strikes me as positively immoral while the concept of revealed truth degrades the concept of free intelligence by purportedly relieving us of the hard task of working out the ethical principles for ourselves. What's he saying in that last part? That if you just believe, oh, the Bible is God's word. It's the revealed word of God and I mustn't question it. Then you don't have to do any more thinking, do you? You just turn up your Bible and look for a thou shalt not. Oh, that's what I've got to do because God says so. And uh, um, the uh, French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre once said, Christianity is basically a moral cop-out because it's all decided for you in the Bible, isn't it? You don't have to do any thinking for yourself. And God tells you what you must do and what you mustn't do. And then he sends his son to the cross to die in your place as if he'd done all the wrong things, which he didn't do, so that you can walk away free. It's loopy. It's crazy. It's daft. Well, maybe not so much. Keith Ward, uh, the uh, uh, philosopher from King's College in London, pointed out that Jean-Paul Sartre's analogy is not a very good one. It's not a good picture of what God is actually doing. Because... Um, if God did tell us in the Bible, step by step, blow by blow, this is exactly what you have to do in every situation of your life, then that certainly would be treating us like robots, as if we had no brain of our own. But actually, God doesn't do that. What God does, says Keith Ward, is a bit more like what happens in a law court, where you have to decide a case one way or another. What you do is you look at two different things. You look at, first of all, case law. What has happened when what's been said, what's been decided in the past? That's where the commands and the teachings of Scripture come in. They provide a guide to what you should do in this particular situation. But it doesn't always decide the situation for you. Second, what you look back on are, are what has happened in the past. And that's why the Bible is a book of stories. Because you have examples to follow. And examples to avoid as well. And the greatest example of them all, of course, is Jesus. And 
Well, you still have moral thinking to do. You have moral decisions to make, but you do it on the basis of all of that evidence that God has supplied for you in the Bible. It's not just a case of saying, yes, Lord, whatever you do, I will do it. No, that's not what happens. But that's how Dawkins and, and, and Hitchens are, are making it feel. Oh, another, another name, I suppose, would be Polly Toynbee. And uh, you how old I am. That's, that's, she was at university the same time as I was. We once had a conversation in the English faculty about uh, um, when the next lecture was going to happen, but that was the extent of my acquaintance with Polly Toynbee. But she's exactly the same age as I am. And reviewing the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, in The Guardian recently, she said it's a terrible story. It's all about Jesus dying, Aslan dying, uh, you know, and, and, and bringing about the end of winter in Narnia. It's all about Jesus giving his life for somebody else. And she said very, very vehemently, I don't need anyone to die for my sins. Thank you very much. And uh, it's the, that's a, those voices have become very, very popular in Britain today. We mentioned Jimmy Carr, the comedian this morning. Ricky Gervais, all sorts of other people. Marcus, what's his name? I can't, big stock, is it? Anyway, I've heard them all bashing Christians on this particular issue. What you believe does not make sense. This whole story about the cross and forgiveness is immoral, sadistic, brutal, barbaric, bloodthirsty, and you should be ashamed of believing it in the enlightened 21st century. <laughs> well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? I think they've got it completely wrong because I think there are four things in particular, they've misunderstood, and that's why they have a twisted picture of what Christians are really saying about what happened on the cross. For a start, I think they're getting the wrong idea about God's feelings. I've nearly put God's emotions there, but uh, God doesn't really have emotions. Emotion comes from something that moves out of you. You know, you know, it suggests something that's impulsive that happens from one moment to another. I might... Um, I don't know, suddenly feel very angry and think, I can't stand this any longer, I'm going home. And it suddenly comes out of nowhere inside me. Or I might um, see someone, in, I'm trying not to look at anybody, incredibly beautiful, sitting in the back row and think, I'm in love. Where did that come from? That wasn't true five minutes ago. And that's the way that human emotions tend to be, aren't they? They come out of nowhere and they just suddenly overmaster us like that. God is not like that. Do you remember we talked about that last year when we did our series on Romans? I have to confess, I borrowed some slides here, not from last year, but because two weeks ago in Austria, uh, they said, what can you teach our Bible school about? And I gave them all sorts of different things. And they said, oh, you've been teaching Great Parks Romans. Okay, do the Romans series. So your entire series was repackaged as 14 lectures um, in, in, in uh, uh, Austria a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I, this is their slides, not yours, but, uh, but uh, same kind of thing. We talked about what God's wrath didn't mean when we were talking about the early chapters of Romans. Because that's another thing. People criticise God as, why can't he just forgive us? Why can't he let us off the hook? Why does he keep on getting angry and throwing his toys out of the pram all the time? The Bible talks about God's wrath over and over. And certainly it's true if you look at Romans chapter 1, it talks about God's wrath. Romans chapter 2, same thing. Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5, before it starts getting much better after chapter 5. But God's wrath is an ever-present undercurrent in those first five chapters. So what does God's wrath mean? Many Christians, as we said at the time, a bit kind of embarrassed about the fact that God is an angry God. But God's wrath, if you look at the, the way the word is used in the Bible, doesn't mean that, first of all, he suddenly feels explosively hostile. I mean, we get that way sometimes, don't we? We meet people that we do not like. I found out on Friday that um, if I carried on driving the car after Saturday, I would be illegal because uh, we needed to get a new MOT certificate. And every year up until now, the garage has reminded us that it's coming up, and this year they forgot. 
So I had to take the car down first thing on Saturday morning to the garage. And I was being bossed around when I took it in by a lady sitting behind the desk for whom I suddenly conceived quite a dislike. <laughs> I really did. I remember thinking to myself, come on, be fair, she's only doing her job. But she was doing it in such a bossy, interfering, supercilious, patronising way. I could feel myself going... And that's what happens with us, isn't it? Your anger just rises sometimes when something happens that really annoys you. But uh, God doesn't feel like that. God doesn't have changes in his emotions. He doesn't fluctuate. I am the Lord. I change not, he says in the Bible. So it doesn't mean that. Second, God's wrath doesn't mean he gets annoyed because he can't get his own way. God is unlimited. A lot of our anger comes from frustration, doesn't it? I remember one of the times when I felt most angry in my life was when I was going across the border into Poland, um, driving a minibus with my wife in the front and uh, three small daughters asleep in the back. We were already late. I wanted to push on from the frontier to Poznan so we could get to a hotel that we'd already booked where hotels weren't great in communist Poland, but at least it was somewhere to sleep for the night. And uh, as we arrived at the frontier post, two customs officers came out to see us. And I noticed that the, the, the woman nudged the guy and pointed to the back of the van, and obviously they'd seen the three girls there. I didn't realise at the time, but what they were obviously saying to one another was, these people are going to want to come moving. <laughs> we can make some money out of them here. And uh, so when I, I, they got to the front, they said, documents. And I gave them the documents. And they looked at them and said, ha, you have no green card. I said, yes, I do. That's the green card there. They said, it's white. I said, yes, it's on white paper, but it's a green card. And, uh, you know, I got it from my insurer just yesterday. It's valid for the trip. It's specially taken out for this trip. We don't recognize that green card in Poland. Yes, you do. That's the right one. I've come in on a green card like this many, many times in the past. Well, sorry, we don't recognize it. I said, well, it's, 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 it's a valid card. You've got to let me through the frontier. And said, no, we don't let you through the frontier unless you pay me lots of money. If you will buy a green card from me, and it will cost a lot of money, then I will let you go. Otherwise, he said, you can turn right round and drive back to England as far as I care. Now, I don't get annoyed a lot of the time. But I was just, I'm going to kill somebody. You know, because that's what happened. I couldn't get my own way. I argued with him for about 20 minutes. And in the end, I realised I was just going to have to give in. And we had to spend most of the money that we brought across for that trip <laughs> just to get into the country. That's horrendous. It really was. But God's never um, like that, is he? He can, he, he's never frustrated in the way that we are. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He has all power. God is not frustrated, so anger doesn't come from frustration where God's concerned either. God's wrath doesn't mean, third, that he just develops a dislike to some unfortunate human beings. I like him, and I like her, and she's all right, but him I cannot stand. And so suddenly, you know, the wrath of God. It can sound like that in the Bible, can't it? Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. <laughs> and we need to be very careful with verses like that, because what it's really saying in a very oriental way is, I love Jacob so much, I have been so good to him. What I felt for Esau is almost like hatred. In comparison, it just pales in comparison. Now, actually, when you think about it, God was quite good to Esau. <laughs> he became quite wealthy. He had a good life. What that verse is talking about is simply what God had decided the place would be in the future destiny of the world. So it's not that God thinks, I don't know why I ever created him. I can't stand him any longer. I'm just going to nuke him and send him to hell forever. It's not that way. God's emotions aren't fickle in that sort of a way. Nor does it mean that God's feelings are bruised and he's got to take it out on somebody. We get like that, don't we, sometimes? 
Somebody's got to suffer because I'm feeling annoyed. It's a Monday morning and I've burned a toast and I'm not in a good mood, so the first person that meets me is going to get it. You know? That's human. It's not the way that God is. God is perfectly unchangeable. And so God's wrath simply means a settled attitude towards evil, towards oppression, to anything that diminishes his creation and stops the people that he's created with love from being everything they possibly can be. That's what God hates. It's a settled hatred. It never changes. It never flares up. It never dies down. It's always just there. Same thing's true with God's love, incidentally. And uh, God's love is a settled uh, disposition as well. You can't say that God loves you because of anything in you. He just loves you. There's no explanation for it. But God is love. And it's not because of anything you've done or because you're more beautiful or more cuddly than the next person. It's just because God loves you. And those things don't change. So God's feelings are different, work differently from ours. It's not that he's getting annoyed and throwing his toys out the pram or anything like that. Actually, for the students in Austria, we did a little exercise because they cannot survive 50 minutes of my voice without falling asleep. You people I know are made of sterner stuff. But don't worry, I won't keep you for 50 minutes, not tonight. Um, so you need to put in little exercises and games and things you can play. So what we did at this point was just look at some things that we say about love. And it just gets them to work out, discuss together, and then work out which piece could God say and which couldn't he? For instance, people often say, I think I'm falling in love with you. No, not God. Because if God's emotions are unchangeable, that's not a phrase he would use. I will never, ever let you down. Yep, that's God, isn't it? That's the kind of thing that he would say. An unchanging faithfulness that you can rely on. She's so beautiful. I'm in love already. Nope, that doesn't sound like God. His love is not called out by anything in us. It's just there. Even if you betray me, I'll never stop loving you. That's God, isn't it? In fact, that's almost a direct quote from 1 Timothy. If we're faithless, he continues faithful because he cannot deny himself. I will do anything for your good, whatever the cost. That's exactly God, isn't it? You are perfect. You're the only one for me. Well, that's not God. Silly little exercise, but you, you see what it's trying to do. I should have made you do it, really, but anyway. Um, so, uh, here's a quotation that we, 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 we put in when we were talking about this from Jim Packer. Do you remember the great theologian who uh, died in Canada a couple of years ago? He said this, God has no passions. This does not mean that he is unfeeling, impassive, or there's nothing in him that corresponds to emotions and affections in us. But whereas human passions are in a sense passive and involuntary, and especially the painful ones, grief, fear, regret, and despair, being called forth and constrained by circumstances that aren't under our control. They just arrive out of the blue, and we don't know where they've come from. The corresponding attitudes in God have the nature of deliberate, voluntary choices, because that's who he is, and therefore they're not of the same order of, as human passions at all. So, the love of the God who is spirit, he says, is no fitful, fluctuating thing as human love is, nor is it a mere impotent longing for things that may never be. Charlie Brown, uh, longing for the little red-haired girl that he's never got the courage to speak to. It's not that kind of thing. It's rather a spontaneous determination of God's whole being in an attitude of benevolence and benefaction, an attitude freely chosen and firmly fixed. That's the way God is. So we need to remember there's a difference between the way he feels things and the way we feel things. Because we're at the mercy of our emotions 
of our past memories, of our prejudices, of our upbringings, all sorts of things. God, on the other hand, is fixed and unchangeable. And for people like Dawkins and, uh, and Hitchens to paint the picture of a God who's jealous and loves some people and not others and plays favorites and sacrifices his own son on the, Christ, on, on the cross, he, he just needs somebody to die to satisfy his wounded vanity. That's not the Bible's picture of God at all. The second thing that they get wrong, I think, is our sinfulness. Sin, to many people, doesn't seem to be too much of a problem. The great German writer Heinrich Heine was asked as he lay on his deathbed, are you worried? You're going into the presence of God and, you know, you, you, you've not lived a perfect life. You've done lots of things that are wrong. How do you feel about going to see your maker? And he simply said, Dieu me pardonnera, c'est son métier, which means God will forgive me. That's his job. That is cheap forgiveness, isn't it? It's not job, God's job by any means to forgive us. The Bible makes it quite clear, and we'll explore this a bit more next week, that God has no need to forgive us for anything. We have blown it. We have made a choice to go in our own way and not in his way. And as a result, he's perfectly justified in blaming us and, uh, uh, and giving us the full rigor of the law. God doesn't need to forgive us. It's not his job. And if God does forgive us, it's because there is nothing else he can do. It's something that's desperately important to do. I think that's why people say, you know, Jesus died for me. He gave his life on the cross so I could be forgiven. Well, thank you very much. But I mean, I mean, I didn't ask him to do that. I mean, if I had done, that would make sense. But, you know, how somebody randomly dying by the hand of the Romans 2,000 years ago affect me here and now and affect what's going to happen to me after, after death? That's crazy. How do these things connect together? And the answer is, well, either the cross is the greatest act of mercy in the history of the universe, or it means nothing at all. And they cannot see the connection, because they don't take sin very seriously. But the Bible talks about sin as something that is like a disease, like COVID-19, if you like. Something that's there inside us and spoils the rest of our life. What you tend to see when somebody's got COVID, we talked about this in the Roman series as well, is the symptoms, isn't it? You know when you've got COVID because your nose won't stop running and uh, you, know, you can't taste anything. and all, all those symptoms that we know about. But they are just the symptoms, they are not the disease. And similarly, the sins that people commit of oppression, injustice, neglect, selfishness, all of those kinds of things, they are just the outcropping of something that's wrong inside us. And the real poison comes from the fact that, as Romans chapter 3 puts it, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory that God expected our lives to show. We've all messed up. And that sin thing is a disease that the human race has gone, which is now born into generation after generation after generation. And because that's the case, there is nobody who's perfect. There's nobody who's right. There's nobody who lives in the way that God has indicated. And therefore, we all stand under God's condemnation. We're all guilty. It's a serious, serious business as far as the Bible is concerned. Richard Cunningham is a guy who works for um, um, UCCF in this country in universities. He leads lots of university missions every year. He's written some very clever books about why Christianity makes sense. And he tells this little story in one of them. If a husband and wife walk along the banks of the Seine, this has been a university mission in Paris, I think, but still, and the husband pronounces his undying love for his wife, adding that he will show, show, show here how much he loves her, and then jumps into the water, huh? 
Would she see how the dying and the loving were connected? No. She would think, if he loved me, he would have lived for me and not killed himself so gratuitously selfishly. And that's the way that some people think about the death of Jesus. If Jesus really loves me, why did he have to do that horrible stuff with nails and blood? I mean, thank you and everything, but what's that got to do with me? Just so with the loss of Jesus, says Cunningham. We don't see how the loving and the dying are related, do we? And he goes on to say, that's because we don't see sin in the same way that God sees it. As something that really needs sorting out in us. Something that spoils us being the kind of people he wants us to be and the kind of people he wants to make us over to be. So that one of these days will be just the way that he dreamt of us being at the moment of our creation. We'll stand in the presence of God, we'll lock eyes with Jesus and we'll be transformed into his likeness. And that will be beautiful. That'll be amazing. That'll be the most incredible thing that will ever happen to us in the history of the universe. Forgiven, sanctified, made children in God's family, adopted into his family. Incredible thing to happen. And that is so serious, says Cunningham, that if the only way to do it was for Jesus to die on the cross, to take on himself the blame of all of our sins, so that he could pay the price for everything, then that's what had to happen. And he says at the end of that explanation, we don't understand the cross, the sheer brutality of the cross, because we don't understand our own danger. There is no way we can make ourselves right with God. There is no way we can suddenly start pulling ourselves together and living in the moral way. As a religion say you can, but you can't. And he says, consider our husband and wife again walking along the bank of the Seine, when the wife falls in. <laughs> her husband jumps in and after a struggle manages to push her to the bank with his last piece of energy before falling back under the water. Would you then see how his dying and his loving were connected? Of course she would. Because she realises the danger that she was in and how he has lovingly given his life so that she could be set free. And Cunningham says this, Jesus on the cross plunged into the icy river of death in the place of sinful humanity. Sin is so serious that God's own son had to die. We're getting a picture together here, but we've, not, we've only got half it so far. There are two other things to, to, to talk about, two other things to get wrong. Because you can say that, okay, so Jesus died so that this sin thing, the power of it could be broken in us, and God could start building a relationship uh, with us again, changing us inside, sending the Holy Spirit into our life. Okay, that's fair enough. But why did it have to be death on a cross? Why couldn't God just forgive us? I mean, that's what we ask of children, isn't it? Two children in the playground. Decide they want the same toy at the same time. And they start knocking lumps out of one another. And you're asking, I need you to behave yourselves. Now come here. here say you're sorry to one another. Say you're sorry. I'm sorry. Mm. Come on, you say you're sorry too. All right, I'm sorry. But he started it. Well, you've got to forgive him. All right, I forgive you. And then everything's all right again. Why can't God be as simple as that? Why didn't God just say, okay, I forgive you. You've messed up, but hey, I'm big enough to take it. Let's, let's just forget the whole thing. But God can't do that because God is not quite in the same position as we are. And that's where people get it wrong about God's forgiveness. Let me just mention three things that I think are important here. The first one is this. Forgiveness always costs somebody something. I mean, you might forgive somebody else for doing something horrible to you. There are lots of wronged wives, for instance, who've swallowed their pride and taken their husband back and said, OK, I forgive you. Let's start again. That's brilliant. But... 
you shouldn't think that there's not a cost involved. That poor woman has got to, 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 to bury her own deep feelings of insecurity, resentment, disloyalty, all of the things that have happened to her. She's got to put the path away behind her. She will probably pay a heavy price for that moment of forgiveness. Maybe an invisible price, but she'll feel it. Every time they walk into a party, hand in hand, and you can see all the other couples looking at him. Ah, he was cheating on her just five minutes ago. That forgiveness costs a price. Or suppose you're a teenager who pinches your dad's car, his expensive BMW or whatever. People never drive BMWs properly, do they? So you wrap it around a lamppost at 80 miles an hour in the first five minutes. The car is a write-off. And you come home and say, Dad, I've wrecked your car. Your dad might well say, well, you've learned a lesson, so I will forgive you. But there's still a price to be paid. I mean, he, he's going to have to get a new car from somewhere, isn't he? And he's going to pay the price. And so the forgiveness that you get costs something. Now, that's the first thing. Forgiveness costs somebody something. And for God just to say, oh, I forgive you, I let you off the hook. That wouldn't work. There is a price to be paid. And that's what the death of Jesus is all about. Somebody showing how much sin has got us tied up in a net and how much it costs to get us free from that. Second thing, we forgive because we have been forgiven. God is in a different situation. God is, is, is not the same that we are. And uh, did you notice how in that passage that we read a bit from, and we will get there in the end, at the, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it talks about that. It talks about the fact that because we have been forgiven, we uh, um, live in a different way. God made him to be sin who, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Paul says that changes our life. We've got to be different. If one died for all, all those who live, who've accepted the gift of new life from Jesus, all those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so we forgive because we've been forgiven. Jesus has shown us through his costly on the cross what forgiveness looks like. So I cannot carry grudges against my brothers and sisters in the church. I cannot have a feud going on with my next door neighbour for 10 or 15 years. I cannot do things which, which express no forgiveness in my own life because I know how much I've been forgiven for. God is not in that situation. And God is responsible for administering the justice in the universe. What's it going to be like if God just says, Oh, we'll forgive him. Oh, boys will be boys. He's forgiven too. Oh, he's a murderer. He's a sadist. He's a, he's a mass murderer. Oh, dear me. Well, that's, that's, that's very wrong, Adolf. You shouldn't be doing stuff like that. But I forgive you anyway because you're my children. What sort of a universe will we be living in if it were like that? And so the third point is simply, if God simply ignores evil, what happens to the universe? The price has to be paid somewhere along the line. And Richard Dawkins himself actually seems to admit this, because as recently as years ago in 2019, uh, he was uh, doing an interview for the Times, and he said he feared that it would be a bad thing to take religion away from people. The removal of religion would be a bad idea for society because it would give people, quote, license to do really bad things. He likened the importance of a higher power informing our morality, in other words, God telling us what's absolutely right and absolutely wrong, to the presence of surveillance cameras to prevent shoplifting, warning people would feel free to commit crimes 
if they need to obey the divine spy camera in the sky reading their every thought was removed. And he's showing some realism there, isn't he? Because that's what people are like. The more you take away the restrictions, the more people are going to fiddle with the rules. The more you trust people when they can't be trusted, then the more of a mess you get into. And without uh, talking about individuals or politics or whatever, that is part of the story of both American politics and British politics over the last few years. People get away with what they can get away with. Right now in Russia, there's a horrendous situation going on. Why? Because people don't do what is right. And they need the rules. They need to be told what's right and what's wrong. Otherwise, if you just say, just every time, I forgive you, the situation will just spiral into worse and worse uh, realms, won't it? But there's one final thing. And with this, we are finished. It's a hot night, so thank you for your patience. But uh, we need to look at this one too, because this is important. You might say, okay, so somebody needs to pay the price for us to be forgiven. That's fine. So it's not that God is an angry, jealous God who's throwing toys out of the pram. He's just somebody who hates evil and must see evil dealt with justly. That's fine. But why Jesus? I mean, he didn't do anything. So why pick on somebody who's just a, a bystander and make him responsible for going through that horrible and awful death just for us. And that's the fourth thing, getting the wrong idea about who Jesus is. Now, we've been trying over the last few weeks without much success to uh, play videos in the course of these services, and we have not re it's not really worked too well. But to the brilliance of the man on the desk at the back, thank you, Richard, we have, we have been able to solve the problem, we think. Okay, so everybody pray very hard for about five seconds. Okay, and we'll see if we can play this little trip, uh, bit of a video. It's just one clip to try it out to see if it works. But this is uh, from a ministry called uh, One Minute Apologetics in America, which gives you ideas about how you can defend faith in just one minute. And here they're asking a girl who's thought a lot about this question of why it had to be Jesus who died on the cross, about whether this is what has been called cosmic child abuse or not. Okay, I am now going to press the button. Maybe we need to press again to play. Let me see. There. We're going to be asking you a series of questions, and the first one I'd like to ask you is, is the atonement cosmic child abuse? This is an objection that I come across a lot in my work with progressive Christianity, and the idea is that to think of the atonement as God requiring the blood sacrifice of his son Jesus well, doesn't that make him some kind of cosmic abuser of his own son? And so I think that to untangle this a little bit, we need to, to think about a couple things. The first thing would be that sometimes there's a misunderstanding of what we mean when we talk about the wrath of God. And I think the reason that misunderstanding is so prevalent is a lot of people have had abusive fathers. And so they're conflating the holy and just and controlled wrath of God for sin with the abusive and petty and uh, impatient and sinful wrath of their own fathers. And so they, they apply that to God and think, well, that couldn't be. But when we talk about the wrath of God, the Bible uses the metaphor of a cup, that it's a cup that Jesus drank for us. And the reason the wrath of God is something we can actually be thankful for is because if God doesn't have wrath for sin, if, if he doesn't punish sin and bring justice to that, then when we're all together in the new heaven and the new earth, then it'll just be another version of hell if sin is in that world. But, but have the new heavens and the new earth is really a way for God to quarantine those who put their trust in him away from all of the evil and the suffering and oppression of the world forever. And so in this way, 
Christianity doesn't just give us an answer to the problem of suffering and evil, but we have a God who actually became the answer himself, which leads us to the second misunderstanding with this objection, which is that uh, somehow Jesus was this hapless victim that was just standing by being tortured against his will. When in reality, because we know that Jesus is God, again, God put on flesh, stepped into creation to, to experience that and take that punishment upon himself. And I think for those of us that really know the depth of our own sin, this becomes really, really good news. And we know that Jesus willingly laid his life down. That's why he came. And that's why we find so much joy in the gospel. There we go. We got through to the end without anything going wrong. Brilliant. But uh, that second point is important, isn't it? Jesus was no bystander. Jesus was God himself. And so what was happening on the cross was not that God was saying, we need a victim, you'll do Jesus. No, God was paying the price himself. And that's why the Bible talks about uh, the cross being the ultimate demonstration of the love of God. Not the impatience of God or the jealousy of God or anything like that, but the love of God. Because God took the most precious thing in the world to him, who was God himself. And Jesus willingly went to the cross. He didn't want to. You see him in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, not my will, but yours be done. But if this cup can pass for me, then Lord, let it happen. And God said, no, it's got to be this way. You see him talking to Peter. Peter saying, oh, Jesus, you're not going to get crucified. Don't worry. You're just feeling a bit down this morning. You'll be all right. And Jesus saying, get thee behind me, Satan. Because he recognizes behind Peter's words, the tempter trying everything he can to deflect him from the one thing that will solve the human problem, that will challenge the grip of sin over the whole of creation and will enable human beings to, to break free and be everything that God always wanted them to be. And you can see that in the way that the Christians early in, in, in the history of the church talked about it. They understood because the cross became their symbol. The cross was such a, a shameful thing in the Roman Empire that Cicero, in one of his speeches, and again, we, we quoted this in the Roman series last year, said, let the cross be as far as possible from the minds, from the lips, even from the thoughts of a Roman citizen. It was the most shameful way to die. And yet, when you look at the archaeology of old Christian buildings, when you look at the carvings they've left behind in the catacombs in Rome and the places where they used to meet secretly, you find the cross all over the place. They gloried in the cross because far from being an incoherent, barbaric, bloodthirsty throwback to prehistoric thinking that didn't even make sense, it was something quite different. It was the one plan that could make things different for us. And so we come back right at the end to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's just read this together again. For the love of Christ controls us, and he's talking to him and the others who are preaching the gospel are in the Mediterranean in those days. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Jesus died to make death to sin and new life a possibility for everybody. And he died for all so that those who live through him would no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. And he says, now all these things are from God. It was God's plan from the start.
It was God who paid the immense cost. And as Paul says elsewhere in Romans, if he didn't bear his only son but gave him freely up for all of us, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? God's already paid the most incredible, fantastic sacrifice, sacrificial price he could possibly have paid. Surely, if he loves you that much, there is nothing he's going to hold back from you besides Jesus. All these things are from God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God wasn't standing by and watching somebody else suffer. God was there on the cross in the person of Jesus, not counting the wrongdoings against him, but setting us free. And once people get it right about those four issues that we've looked at tonight, suddenly they start to see the cross in a whole new light. I was very interested when I was just doing some research for this to come across the the story of a guy who was Richard Dawkins, um, E. right-hand researcher a few years ago, three or four years back. He was pouring scorn on Christian evangelists, on the gospel, manufacturing the bullets for Richard Dawkins to fire. And guess what? Suddenly he's started to understand what the cross is all about. And it's changed his life as well. This is not, not coherent rubbish. This is something we can be proud of because it's God's plan that's reached out and touched us and wants to touch millions of other people as well. More about this next week, but I think that's probably plenty for tonight, Colin.